Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. I am very excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Wallace Boston, General Partner at Green Street Impact Partners, President Emeritus of the American Public University System, and a current member of the National Advisory for the Committee on Institutional Quality and Integrity. Wally, welcome to the podcast. Haley, it's great to be here. Good to see you again. I love the fact that you and I met uh, randomly sitting at an event for University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education uh, at the top of the ISTE conference in Philadelphia this year. After meeting you, I did a deep dive on a lot of your writing, a lot of your work, and I'm so honored to have you on the podcast today to be able to interview you and have you share some of the wisdom that you share in all of your many writings and thoughts being shared publicly here on the podcast. Oh, great. Glad to do it. So let's start off. I, uh, I'd love to know how you became the personal and professional version of yourself. Hmm. I, I, I think there's a little, little bit of overlap. So, um, you know, it, it goes back to my, my father. I'm the oldest of four and uh, he was a uh, mechanic and um, frequently told all four of us that it didn't matter to him um, what we ended up doing in life as long as uh, we became the best that we could be. So, you know, being the best that we could be, in, in my particular case, school came kind of easy for me. So, um, you know, he wasn't a happy fellow when uh, I, I didn't be the best and try to get straight A's uh, and, uh, you know, go to college and, you know, ultimately do a lot of different things after college. Uh, in, in, including actually graduating from three colleges with three degrees. Uh, but, um, you know, I, 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 I think that was ingrained uh, to, to me in, in childhood. And then, you know, I, I, I applied that role in my professional career as well, which was, you know, why, why take a job or assume a role and, and sit there in the middle? I mean, that might be okay for some people, but, you know, I, I always uh, tried to, be the best that I could be. And um, in, in my case, I guess the jobs that I happened to take and the people that I happened to work for and with uh, appreciated that. And so I, you know, fell into some wonderful situations and some wonderful leadership roles. You know, you name that this ambition drove you to pursue education post high school three times over with multiple, or post college even three times over with multiple degrees. And, you know, so often when I have guests on the podcast that have the experience of working in and around education, having themselves uh, accrued quite a few degrees, they often have formative experiences in their own teaching and learning that informed their habits or actions later in life. You name your father as one, but are there any moments for you either as a high school student, a college student, or a graduate student that really informed how you led the organizations you led later in your career? Uh, <laughs> so, so I think my, my first, I have several 
favorite teachers, but my, my first favorite teacher was Mrs. Benson, who was my first grade teacher. And uh, I'm old enough that we didn't have kindergarten back in those days. So I went to first grade and learned to read. Uh, my parents were pretty busy with four children, uh, pretty close together, and uh, I, that's where I learned to read. But I somehow picked up reading pretty quickly. And by the end of the first month of school, I had read our rate reader for the year. Uh, and so in class, Mrs. Benson stopped calling on me and, and she encouraged me to keep a journal, which was interesting because to write the journal, I had to write words that I hadn't even learned yet. I knew how to speak them, but I, I didn't know how to write them. And, and, and it, what, what I found interesting about Mrs. Benson was here's a person who had a pretty big class. I think there might've been 35 or 40 people in my first grade class. And rather than dealing with a distraction or this same person who raised their hand all the time and stopped calling on me, she, she gave me an assignment that was unique to the rest of the class. And, you know, it, it probably uh, formed my enjoyment of reading and writing uh, at, at that early stage. And, and then, you know, uh, I'll skip all the other teachers because you try to keep these to 30 minutes and go to uh, my dissertation chair at uh, Penn, uh, a professor named Bob Zemsky. And so we were having a discussion about uh, my dissertation and um, who I could interview on a particular topic. And I surfaced a name and Bob knew that person. And I thought it was a little funny because I was talking about somebody in the world of online education and Bob Zemsky, to the best of my knowledge, has never taught an online class. Um, but, uh, and, and at the time thought online was pretty much email and, uh, you know, a, a, a uh, you know, LMS. And so um, I uh, had, had this, I said, wow, Bob, I said, I didn't realize that you knew him. I said, what a small world. <laughs> And as only Bob could do in his Socratic method of teaching, he paused and said, Wally, it's not a small world. It's a small socioeconomic world. And uh, as, you know, as you know, I'm passionate about uh, affordable education and access and everything. But Bob's right. You know, I, I, I've had some excellent opportunities because as someone who came from a blue collar background whose parents didn't go to college, um, you know, I was able to attend some fairly elite schools thanks to scholarships and, you know, and, and build a social network that I probably couldn't have built, A, if I hadn't gone to college, and B, if I'd have gone to, you know, different colleges than the ones that, that I went to. So those, those are my two. Uh, thanks for paring it down. I love that you have a laundry list of incredible teachers who have impacted your life. I, I have yet to find a person that comes on this podcast that doesn't have a searing memory of, of a teacher that really transformed the way they view the world. And that's really why education is so powerful. And so many of us are, after all these years, still dedicated to the cause of improving education. I, I want to touch on the point you made about uh, your professor for your dissertation, Bob Zemsky you know, online education really has transformed. And in the last probably 20 years, it's transformed dramatically. 
Will you talk a little bit about how your work and your dissertation, uh, what you see as really the crux of online education today and how it's changed since then? Sure. So, you know, I think, I think, I think the first um, online degree was offered by the University of Phoenix around 1996. And Prior to that, there were some online classes. Um, you know, the Plato system uh, was a network that you could get online classes. Uh, but you, you really had an issue. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, that we had a connectivity issue. I mean, there, you have to be a certain age, and I don't know what that age is where you remember the dial-up modem and the, the, the little noises that it made. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, so uh, at, but it wasn't that long ago. And, and, and so some of the first online schools and American Public University system where, you know, which I led for 18 years, um, you know, it, it was, our, what I would, I would say our online courses, you know, and, and we started our, courses in 1993, our online courses were, as Bob said, you know, as Bob once published, you know, it was, it was email to communicate with a faculty member, but you were basically delivered assignments and books and boxes like a correspondence course because so few people actually had the connectivity to really make it uh, a meaningful class. And, and, and around, uh, 2000, between 2000 and 2005, we really had these tech, technological uh, advances where um, I, I would say the majority of people who were in, you know, decent sized metro areas, like 30,000 people or more, not certainly not rural, but, but if you were in a decent sized town or city, you, you all of a sudden got broadband. And that, that made a tremendous difference because even though most students still to this day study asynchronously, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, just for the purpose of this podcast, synchronous is when you and the instructor are in the classroom at the same time like you and I are. Right, uh, right. But, but most of the classes are asynchronous because most of our students don't want to be in the classroom at the same time as the instructor or don't have the time if they're a working adult. Um, so, but, but, but that broadband capability allowed the universities to do things like embed videos and embed simulations and, you know, take, take a class from a Word document syllabus to some, you know, interactive links, you know. Make it come alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah lot, lots, the, the class was made more, much more engaging. And in fact, that, you know, that, that was really one of the big findings in, in, in my dissertation, which was on online retention, institutional retention, uh, was, was student engagement. You know, that, that um, you know, it, it, a lot of the parameters for persistence in online were very similar to the parameters for persistence in adult students who were attending face-to-face -face classes. You, you, you had to get them engaged, you had to keep them engaged and you had to give them pathways to show that they were getting closer and closer to completion. And you had, you had to simplify things like you had to make the whole process of transfer credit easy, which when it's at a distance, it 
sometimes you know some people don't make it seem easy so so those those things have changed we're, we're much better now you know i mean people don't even think about the speed but but i will say this the the pandemic did reveal that we have holes we have holes in rural america for broadband and you know one of the recent uh bills passed by congress uh allocates several you know i don't know if it's 100 billion but uh, it, it does allocate money for improving broadband speed in both rural areas and inner city areas. So we need, we need that for access. You know, when you speak about access, one of the things that I think both you and I are passionate about is this idea of how online learning brings accessibility to various places. But if there aren't any of the roads and rails to actually get the online access in rural communities and uh, impoverished communities across the United States, you don't have that same accessibility. How do you think that when there is the ability to physically access the internet and conduct online learning at a high internet speed, how do you feel online learning transforms the ability for our, our ability to achieve more equitable education solutions for both university students and K-12 education? So I'm going to talk about both and, and you use one example. I, I haven't gotten the school's permission to use their name, but uh, I, I was I was on the phone not that long ago with uh, an academic advisor at a small uh, college in rural Texas. And um, they were participating in an online platform, a, a course sharing platform. Um, and, you know, when I asked her uh, why she was utilizing the platform as much as she was utilizing the platform she goes oh this this is a win-win for me she said i happen to have a really good math teacher who has some extra time who can teach some sections on the platform and our price is affordable and she says at the same time when i happen to lose somebody because they move out of town because a spouse got relocated and i can't find another peop, another person to teach. And I'll just say it was philosophy, but because I, I, I can't remember the course, but it was a course that, you know, there aren't that many courses. She goes, I can get that course for my student through the sharing platform. And, and so in, in her particular case, she looked at this situation because her community had broadband, but it was rural and not that many people move in or move out. You know, she, she, she was able to utilize that online course sharing platform to bring in teachers and then also to, instead of having to let her teacher go, to find uh, other sections of classes for her teacher to teach and bring in revenue to the institution and basically offset his pay. Now, this is a topic I know a lot about <laughs> because okay. that's what my organization does for K-12, mm -hmm. provide virtual teachers to schools all over the U.S. who may not for geographic reasons, rural versus urban, you know, variety of reasons. I guess, you know, I read, I read your post about from February regarding the UC system banning online degrees. And it gave me pause, even though the reasons you laid out and the reasons they laid out were really 
thoughtful. They want to take time. They want to plan this, you know, with consideration. You know, California has very rural environments as well. It's not just uh, it's not just all Los Angeles and San Francisco, as, although that's my what the media makes us believe because they're the most regularly talked about cities. But there are quite a few rural environments across California, and it did really, you know, I read the article twice, thinking, okay, I appreciate the thoughtfulness, and yet. It's a really privileged perspective to say we have to have these folks on campus. We have to have them here for some amount of time. Yeah, well, it's 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 BS. You know, I won't say the words. It's just BS. I, <laughs> thank you, thank you. We won't have to bleep that out as we do the editing. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I look. I earned all three of my college degrees in person. Uh, but at the same time, I, I ran a very large online institution for 18 years that the only classes we had in person were doctoral seminars, uh, you know, twice a year. So, uh, you know, for our doctoral students and, and, and um, you know, to, to make those judgments to me, you aren't being student centric. You're, 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 you're basically showing that you're faculty centric and, and that it's not the student coming first. And, and, you know, back to some of those things that I learned in life that helped me govern was, uh, and it, but, it, but it wasn't through academics. It was in one of my earlier jobs. I, I said, I watched a leader do something that, that I didn't like. And I said, you know, if I ever get a leadership role, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I treat people the same way that I would want to be treated. And so to me, that rule, I mean, it's similar to the golden rule, is what, it, to me, it, it, it means that if we are faculty members at any institution, K through 12, higher ed, you know, workforce development, whatever it is, you, 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 you have to put yourself in the shoes of the student. And, and so for students who would be terribly inconvenienced by having to set foot on campus for an entire semester or an entire year, uh, why are you doing that? When the technology's there, they're gonna get a quality education. Being on campus, that is, that is your social connection. So maybe they're gonna miss the social connection and, and that's unfortunate, but if they're willing if they understand that and they're willing to say, you know what, I'm just, it's more important for me to get the education. You ought to be willing to give them the education 100% online. I think you and I share an opinion on this topic. It also reminds me though, and I'm gonna pivot us a little bit because this is a topic I think you also hold near and dear to your heart, especially today. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the quick reaction that a lot of public school systems and universities had to the introduction of chat GPT and the machine learning debate. So let's sit back there for a second. I, you know, my purview is K-12 education. I know you focus on both secondary and K-12, but the banning of chat GPT in New York City public schools this spring feels a lot like the banning of the online degrees for the U.S. system, the U.S. The UC system in California. Do you have a similar reaction to that and, and kind of the, the current debate around AI or do you feel differently? Oh, I, 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 totally, I totally do. First of all, it, it, it shows a complete lack of understanding about AI. 
it, it, it shows that there wasn't any deliberative process where people sat down and actually used it. And, and for the most part, it was free. And, and um, the, the crazy part, what a lot of people didn't know when, when, when all those things came out in the spring, some of the most adept college students found ChatGPT when it was first released in November and had, I, I think I read somewhere where 50% of college students were using it by the spring. Shame on us. You know, they're, they're digital natives, we're not. Right. Although, although I like to think I'm pretty adept digitally, but uh, shame on us and shame on that group of administrators who made that decision because clearly they hadn't looked at it. Because in some of my earlier writings about it, I said, hey, I'm, I'm fine if somebody wants to use this to write something. But A, they better tell me they used it to write it. Mm -hmm. And B, they better get their citations correct because, you know, it, it, it still doesn't get citations correct. Uh, you know, I, 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 I can put in a query, you know, as, as they call it, a prompt and uh, ask it to list, you know, papers that I've written in my lifetime or over the, you know, last year, over the last three months or whatever. And it gives me credit for papers that I never wrote. I don't know whose papers those are. <laughs> But, but they're not mine, you know, it just plugs my name in. Not me. <laughs> yeah, it gives, gives me a nice citation, but, but it's just not my paper, not me, and it's not accurate. And, you know, because what is a language learning model? I mean, it, it, it is skilled at finding the right words. So it is glib. It sounds authoritative, but it's a damn skillful liar. Excuse my French, you know, <laughs> um, and, and, and so look, do I think ChatGPT is helpful? Do I think it's going to get smarter? Absolutely, absolutely. And do I want students plagiarizing? No, but you know what? I'll, um, you know, if, 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 if I were teaching a course at the present time, I just say, look, if you're going to use it, use it, but you better put the citations in. Because if you don't put the citations in, they're not right. I'm going to give you a big fat goose egg. It reminds me of when I was growing up, my dad used to tell me I was using calculators in school. I had the TI-86 that I carried to my calculus class. And my dad used to tell me, you know, I used the first computer. He went to university, was a math major, and was one of those people that brought punch cards to a building. And that was the first computer ever designed. That was my dad. And he said, I never thought you'd be able to carry a computer, like a computer calculator in your hand to math class. And he said, and the teachers used to tell us, it's not like you'll have a calculator in your pocket, but what am I holding up now? I'm holding up my iPhone, which is a calculator in my pocket. I don't yeah. have to remember any of the math. So the, the evolution of math and the way we calculate today reminds me of this debate that I am reflecting on with chat GPT. You know, there, there's so much reticence to change and yet, I think about the many ways that a calculator, having a calculator at my fingertips, having the accessibility of using a computer when I need to, has, in, has informed and has me has helped me develop as a professional, as a person. I think ChatGPT AI, that's what we're going to be thinking about in 30 years. We're going to be thinking about, wow, that, that time that we all stuck our feet in the ground, or a lot of people stuck their feet in the ground, with such reticence to introduce a new tool. I, I agree. I, I actually had a blog post that compared it to spreadsheets. So, you know, I, 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 the, one of the first spreadsheets that came out was VisiCalc and after VisiCalc, there was Lotus one, two, three. And, you know, af after Lotus one, two, three, 
you know, Excel came out and, and, you know, you got Google Sheets and other things, but there was this evolution that if, if you were a pioneer, you know, you, you basically, you know, were a superstar in those early days. And I think in some ways when, you know, because I was a pioneer in spreadsheets that helped my career in finance before I got into education. And um, I think people who uh, are early adopters and learn how to use this are going to do very, very well. You know, honestly, it is pretty devastating to me to think about how we're at the 30 minute mark, which is where we try to wrap up these podcasts. I've had such a great time listening to you share about just kind of like the tip of the iceberg on a, the topics of online learning and, and AI and education. And I, I would recommend to the listeners who are who are joining us today to check out your blog. It's wallyboston.com. There's quite a bit of writing there on these topics and many, many more. Uh, you're very prolific. <laughs> you do a ton of writing. And I, I thank your first grade teacher for really sparking that joy in you because I, since we met just a few months ago, I've enjoyed kind of going into the archives and doing some reading uh, Wally, I, I want to ask our last question as we wrap up here today, which is, and you can interpret it whether for a faculty member or a teacher, but what advice would you give a teacher or faculty member starting out their career right now? Wow, that's that's kind of tough. Uh, it, it's it's only tough because I, th I think it's I think there's different situations. You know, we 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 are we we are in the early stages of major educational transformation. And, um, you know, part of that is going to be led by technology, AI, whether, whether they like it or not. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing now is we're seeing declines in higher ed enrollment because people who were at the edges from an affordability perspective have finally decided it's not worth the money and it's not worth the time to earn a degree. Uh, we're gonna have needs in our workforce for people that understand how to utilize AI. And as someone told me recently, I've told my employees, you don't have to learn how to use AI, but when I hire your replacement, they're gonna know how to use AI. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I spoke to a cousin of mine at a family reunion. She's a second grade teacher in the New York City area. And she's been using it experimentally to help her grade essays. And, and basically asking her to look at the student's voice and, and to compare the student's voice to what she wants, you know, a, a prototype essay to look like and so she's she's actually kind of guiding and training uh whichever i i don't remember which ai whether it was chat gpt or, or bard but um you know she's she's going to stay ahead i mean here's a second grade teacher that's that's teaching reading and writing and she's using the ai and she she's doing it to save her time so she can better prepare for class you know yes there right there yeah Want to use, we want to use it to make our lives better and easier because teachers are important and their yep. time is precious. I love, yep. that. I love that. Well, your family member sounds incredible and hope she has an awesome school year in a few weeks when she goes back to school. Yeah. Well, it's been such an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed our conversation. 
Well, Haley, you know what? Since you have these 30-minute limits, I'm always glad to come back sometime. Oh, look at that. I will be taking you up on that offer. Wally, thank you again for coming, and we'll see you soon in part two. Okay, great. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.